love this podcast because it crushes your dreams of getting rich quick. They actually got me into reading stats for anything. You're tuned in to the Investing for Beginners podcast. Led by Andrew Sather and Dave Ahern. Step-by-step premium investing guidance for beginners. Your path to financial freedom starts now. Starts now. All right, folks, welcome to Investing for Beginners podcast. Tonight, we have a special guest with us. We have Scott Wynn, founder and CEO of Masterworks.io. He is joining us to talk about all things investing in art. So, Scott, thank you very much for joining us today. We really appreciate it, and we're really looking forward to this conversation. So, I guess let's start off a little bit, touch about your background, because I think that has a bearing on where you are today. So, I saw that you started entrepreneuring in, in when you were 15. So you're obviously a late bloomer. <laughs> I, I like uh, the word entrepreneuring. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I don't know if that's in the English language or not, but anyway, <laughs> so I guess, how did you start being creative? Where did this drive for you come from? It's a good question. I always think that entrepreneurs are just people that like building things. I've always liked buildings and I guess in some way, shape or form, it's just been eventually translated into to building companies. So I've always, I've always been driven like that. I actually had a, a friend of mine who's a successful CEO now. We started our first company ever together, I think at age 11. Oh, wow. Um, it's it's so funny. You know, just, it just, we just like, did it as kids. And then this internet thing happened. That's all history. Yeah, that's awesome. So you started off in gaming and, and advertising. So how does that kind of parlay into what you're doing now? Did the, the lessons you learned from that kind of help shape what you're doing now? Yeah, that's a good question. I would say, first of all, I think that all businesses are somewhat similar, right? There's certain frameworks that make any company successful. You have to have a product that's unique. You have to have a market that's big enough. You have to know how to manage people. There's all of these basics that they apply across businesses. But I would say less of my early entrepreneurial career is relevant to Masterworks and just more of the fact that I've been collecting art for 20 years and always always had it as a passion and now was able to turn that passion into to a business. But it's the art market's hard. Like you guys know this, and I, I think all, all of your listeners know this, which is walking into a gallery is an awkward experience. Learning about art is complicated. Reading art books, I personally find a lot of art books to to be not that well written, definitely not written for beginners. It's just a very difficult market to approach. So I think I think anyone that, that really wants to do it professionally has to at least start with it as a hobby or just a passion before before eventually do it, doing it as a business. So that I guess leads me to the next question. So how did you get started in art? How do you how did you how did that happen for you? Yeah, it's a good question. So I grew up with art books. My mom was interested in art. I liked art as a I like the idea of collecting art, but look, when I first started collecting, it, it was probably in the late 1990s or probably like 1996, 1997, 1998, mm-hmm. there, there definitely were not people collecting really for pure investment reasons then, at least not as many as today. And thinking back on that, I think the reason that was because there weren't, there wasn't an easy access to price databases. So now I can go to websites like Artnet or ArtPrice and I can look at the price that the people paid for different paintings at auction going back decades. Mm-hmm. So, so today there's a data set that you can use to actually analyze how the art market has been performing. Back then you can rely on people's opinions, right? You, you put right. a dealer and he'd say, Hey, this is a 
$2 million Picasso, I promise you it's worth $3 million. (laughs) Yeah. So it was a little bit of a, I think it was just a harder process to get involved because the data didn't really exist. But so I I started collecting a lot of mistakes as a collector, I think in the, the, the early days, just bought what I liked, became, you know, super obsessed with it. And then, and then I think over time started getting smarter and see, seeing things that I owned, appreciate seeing things that I owned, didn't appreciate seeing the things that I way overpaid for and realized it later from different dealer personalities. Yeah. Lots of years of learning. Yeah. I I got a question I wanted to jump in on. So first off, thanks for joining us, Scott. We often talk about how investing can be both an art and a science. You have the numbers behind it and then the art part. So is art collecting, you talk about having more data now, is it more of the data more of a science or is it more of an art like art? It's a really, it's a really good question. So, so we would say it's the masterworks approach is we say it's both and I'll break that down. So we would say that understanding which segments of the art market have the most momentum, the most, the most volatility, the most depth in terms of number of collectors, that's all data. But there, there does come a moment when you're buying a painting where you, you have to actually look at the painting itself, the object itself and say, is this the right example for this artist that, that I'm buying? And there are certain artists where most artists, they have very recognizable imagery and their top prices are, are, is a certain type of imagery. So I do think it's much more of an art at that point in time where you're looking at the example, you're comparing it to other examples, and you're looking at the condition, you're looking at the size, you're looking at how well it was painted. So there, it's ultimately a little bit of both. Yeah, that's interesting. So how do you think the, how has the art market changed? So from the nineties to today, has it gotten more technical or is it, has it moved away from the galleries and the auctions to more individuals, you know, buying each other's artwork? How does that kind of, yeah, what's so funny is that the art market really hasn't changed. It's really amazing. So when you think about the size of the market, it's roughly depending on whose numbers you, you read, roughly $60 billion a year in art turns over. The size of the asset class is $1.7 trillion. That's really, I, I tell people to think of it qualitatively as families, ultra wealthy families trading paintings between each other around the globe. That's really what it is. There's not businesses that, that exist to buy and sell paintings for investment. There's not, it's really just families doing it. So when we started Masterworks, we just assumed that there would be a very reliable data set on art market sales, high quality data that we could use to start our research team. And what we found is that it didn't exist. So we wound up buying paper auction catalogs going back 70 years with Priceless and having a team of 30 interns do data entry for a couple of years to to establish our initial data set. And then, you know, and I guess what that was 2019. In 2019, that's crazy. There's yeah, no that's crazy. other market that's that big that hasn't been, quote unquote, digitized in a very effective way. So... Yeah, the art market really hasn't changed that much. It's pretty amazing. It's, we think it's the biggest asset class that's never had investment products built for. It's the most misunderstood asset class for its size. Yeah, it's really interesting. Why why do you think that is? Why do you think it's been so slow on the uptake? I think it I think part of it is price point. These paintings are very expensive. So there's only, you know, a handful of people, at least on a percentage basis around the world that can really afford them. So you're talking about tens of thousands of people that are trading these paintings rather than whatever, I don't know, billions of people that trade public equities. I think it's a very fragmented market. 
So it, there's thousands of intermediaries, literally, that work to sell paintings. I think becoming an artist is very hard. Becoming a successful artist is very hard. We talk a lot about how the top 100 artists in the art market are 64% of the dollar volume. You think about millions of people that want to become professional artists, and you think about the probability of ultimately becoming one of the best, and it's so it's so small. It's just a really hard career path. So I think that there's a whole bunch of things that that contribute to it. But yeah, I mean, they're, they're, the art market's really never seen a disruption. It's really operated the same forever. Another amazing stat is Sotheby's up until going private recently was the oldest listed company on the New York Stock Exchange at 275 years old. Wow. These businesses have literally been around for centuries doing exactly what they do today. Mm-hmm. So is is Masterworks working to disrupt that? We're the disruptor. We re- recently announced uh, this week that you know we, we did an equity raise at a valuation in excess of a billion dollars. There's never been anything like that in the art market before. We're really the we're really the first. And it's interesting, like a lot of people in the art market don't know how to think about us exactly, but I I would argue very strongly that we are complementary to the market, meaning we're taking new sources of capital, new investors that that really don't, you know, know 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 close to nothing about art, educating them on the art market. And we're bringing more than a thousand into the art market every single day that otherwise would not be allocating any capital to to art. So I think we're, I think we're hugely beneficial to, to the market from that, that perspective. Yeah. I I would think that you guys, your, your company would help, remove some of the stigma and the stuffiness of the art world. Yeah. I hate that about the art world. Yeah. 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 I, I would agree with that. I, I worked in the, in the wine world for quite a while. The it, same. Yeah. It has the same, it has yeah. the same kind of stereotype, the stuffy stuck up, it's just arrogant yeah, I, people. I, I, and it's, it's so annoying. I, I, I don't, I don't understand that. It, it, that's funny. Like I, I've experienced that though. I, I was in, uh, this was last summer. I was in Soho and I was with this, with my girlfriend at the time. And we walked into a, I can't remember what it was. It's like some, I'm, I'm not a fashion guy. I can't like, when I go into high end fashion stores, I just feel awkward. So I'm standing in like Prada or something like this. And I asked the lady, do you mind showing her this dress? And she looks at me and she says, I don't think you could afford that. And, I, and I'm like, oh, now I realize how people feel in the art market. Like, you want, you walk into a gallery and this is. Yeah, the experience in any, yeah, experience doesn't make sense, right? Like you should be as, as welcoming as possible educate people on artists, on paintings, on why they're important, cultural significance. Mm-hmm. And very few galleries take that take that role on for anyone that walks in the door. Yeah, which is really a shame. It really is a yeah, shame. I agree with that. So I guess we talk, we touched a little bit on asset class. So I guess tell us a little bit about that with what Masterworks is doing and, and what the opportunity and how investors can take advantage of that. Yeah. So our, our thesis is that if you look at the performance of contemporary art and contemporary art is narrowly defined as art created after World War II, that of the past 75 years, that segment of the art market has appreciated 14% a year from 1995 through present. From an appreciation rate perspective, it's really interesting. From a diversification perspective, it's even more interesting because art prices do not necessarily trend in the same direction as public equities. So if you have 60% of your investment portfolio allocated to stocks, and if you're like me, you're concerned that the public equity valuations are, are overheated, then if public equities fall, our prices may not fall. And I, and I think that's the most interesting thing about 
the characteristics of the asset class today. It's a global asset class. You can buy a painting in New York. You can put it on a plane. You can sell it in Hong Kong. The U.S. is only 25% of the art market. Your concentration on any specific country is somewhat limited. We just think it's a really interesting asset class that acts as a diversifier, just like you would think about real estate or some people think about gold or some people in today's world think about crypto. We just think it should be part of an investment portfolio. So how do, how would you compare art to gold then? It's a good question. It's not uh, our research team is better at answering these specific comparisons than I am. I, I think when we think about gold, gold is more correlated to public equities than art is. But interestingly, art does have, out of any asset class we track, art has the highest correlation to gold. And that correlation factor is roughly 0.2, meaning that that 20% of the time art prices move in the, in the same direction as gold prices. So it's still really not that correlated. But I think, look, I think people invest in gold when they're concerned about inflation. I think people are concerned about inflation today. I think art is a real asset. So arguably, it could be a good hedge against inflation. We, we actually don't have any data that, that shows that for full disclosure, but theoretically it, it could be. Yeah. So I, I think in some ways it's similar. And I think a lot of people think of real estate, gold, and art similarly is within the alternatives bucket. So what drives up the prices for art? Is it public opinion or is it the auction prices? What it's drives that? Ex- excellent question. It's an excellent question. So we think there are two primary drivers of, of art prices. And, and one is worth explaining. Uh, and it goes back to my comment about 64% of the art market being related to 100 artists, most of which are no longer. If you think about, and if you go back to school and you think about basic supply and demand dynamics, right? Mm-hmm. You, you have this really interesting thing in the art market where When artists establish a certain amount of cultural significance, it's usually later in life. And there's so many artists that we could use as examples of this. Jackson Pollock is one that that I know well, and I've I've tracked over time personally. So I I like talking about him, but he's this this splatter drip painter in in mid-century America. Um, So Pollock, when he was living, was obviously painting many of these paintings. And then he was on the cover of Time magazine in the late 1940s. And then he died, I think, a couple of years later, if I recall correctly. All of these paintings when he was living were either in his studio or owned by collectors. And he passes away. And those collectors that own those paintings start donating them to museums who never sell paintings. So over time, what's happened is that his cultural significance has grown beyond his death. But the, the number of paintings that collectors can actually buy have shrunk to about 20, 21 or 22 paintings today. And out of those 21 or 22 paintings that are left in private collections, there's only, I think, one or two that would be considered an A example. The majority of them are are B or C examples, but the B or C examples sell for $35 million because if you want a polyg, that's all that's left. So it's, it's an interesting asset class in that you have shrinking supply as cultural significance grows. And that's different than most asset classes. Every single day, there's more gold that's mined. Every single day, there's more homes that are built. Definitely every single day, there's more companies that are started. So you have a unique supply-demand dynamic in the art market that we think drives prices. The second thing, for better or for worse, is that art prices are correlated to to the top 1% on a global basis. So the wealthier the top 1% on a global basis gets, we think the more our prices go up. That is what it is for better or for worse. So if you believe in that trend, then you probably believe in, in our prices going up. 
Oh, that's a uh, that's an interesting take and an interesting. Yeah, I, I like that idea. It goes back to basic economics, which is something I guess you wouldn't necessarily think about with art. So, is it really true you have to be to become famous in art? You have to die. <laughs> is that really? Yeah, it's, it's it's not. Every, everyone always gets that. I think specifically wrong. It's there's nothing significant about an artist dying. And, and honestly, in today's world, we have more living artists than ever. The, the ability to be successful while living today is far greater than it was many years ago. But that the, the moment of death just simply means that supply at that point will start shrinking Stops, yeah. into the future. Yeah. So I, I guess a, a kind of a dork question. So you were talking about private collections. So if something goes to a museum, this is just for me, my curiosity if something goes to a museum is that basically taken out of rotation and it never leaves the museum so if yeah. the louvre if the louvre acquires a painting they're never giving that up is that kind of what yeah, yeah. so there, there is so there is an organization called the ama which publishes guidelines which museums more or less agree to to ethically follow and one of those guidelines is the museums will not sell work for the benefit of society effectively now, interestingly, the they, they suspended that during COVID because so many museums didn't have ticket revenue and they were you know facing serious financial issues. Mm-hmm. And there were a few museums that took advantage of that and did wind up selling work. Um, I, I think I'm going to get this wrong, but the Baltimore Museum tr- tried to do it and ultimately decided that they they couldn't because there was such big public public outcry against it. Mm-hmm. So it's so it, you know it's really just discouraged. And most people believe that. These great works of art should stay in museums for, you know, I guess forever. So what you're saying is we'll never be able to buy the Mona Lisa. <laughs> that's, I mean, that's never the, the Mona Lisa has been stolen something like seven <laughs> yeah. or eight times over. So, so maybe it's still possible. But. Yeah, that's true. I did, I did, I did hear about that story a couple of days ago. It kind of shocked me. I was like, wow, yeah. who knew? All right. So I guess how does Masterworks work? So what do you guys do, and how can we as investors partake of that? Yeah, it's very simple. So we go out and we buy paintings that we think are our investment grade paintings. And that's usually based on data from our research team and our acquisitions team is sourcing examples of those paintings. And then we file that painting with the SEC as a public offering, just like Uber goes public. We, we literally buy, buy a painting and file it as a public offering and then sell shares to any type of investor who, who wants to invest. After people invest, the painting or the securities are, are then traded on our secondary market. And we eventually sell the painting and uh, distribute proceeds to investors. Gotcha. Okay. So I'm going to go out and limb and, and guess that securitizing a painting is probably not something the SEC has done a lot of <laughs> prior to what yeah, you were. We take, yeah, we take our first vehicle with the SEC took a year and a half to to get through. We, we get them through now in a couple of weeks, but it was definitely it was definitely a long process. Wow, that's crazy. So how long does it take you now to do one? Is it, you know, a, 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 couple, a couple of weeks. Okay. Yeah. All right. That's not so bad. So is the top 100 of, of artists out there, are they, can we think of those as like the fang stocks of the equity market? Yeah. It's, I don't even know how to, the fang stocks. Of the equity <laughs> industry. I, don't, I don't even know how to think about that. But the interesting thing about fang is that not only do you have these huge companies, but you have these super fast growing companies. The art market's not really like that. We we have the biggest artist market is Picasso, not surprisingly, but Picasso's market is much slower growing than what we would define as contemporary generally, which is that art created after World War II. You know, Picasso was painting after World War II, but he's generally considered a, a modern artist and not a contemporary artist. Yeah, we, we don't really see the same dynamic. Okay. So what do you think, why is the, the paintings from like World War II, post-World War II, why are they doing better than some of the masters that 
you know, that non art people like us would think of? Yeah. When we started uh, Masterworks, this was probably the the very first learning that, that we had, which wasn't well understood at the time. It was really interesting for me as a collector. So when you look at art appreciation very broadly and over long periods of time, art follows fashion. So what we want to collect, we want to hang in our homes is different than what our grandparents wanted to hang in their homes and different than what their grandparents wanted to hang in their homes. So what, what you see when you look at the data is that certain artists like Rembrandt, for example, appreciate at somewhere between 1% and 2% a year or, or roughly with inflation because Rembrandt's just out of fashion, like a very culturally significant artist, but there's just not that many people that want to buy a Rembrandt and hanging in the living room in today's world. So it, we see contemporary art, as I mentioned, at roughly 14% a year. You move back into modern, I think our data now is somewhere around 9 or 10%, Impressionist to 6 or 7%, and then Old Masters winds up being in the low single digits. So we, we see appreciation rates change, but they change over multiple decades or even centuries back in time. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, I guess I would have never thought that. So I, I'm glad you mentioned that. So yeah, we we actually I was surprised to learn that as well. I had no idea that that for example, Monet market is just appreciating slower than than contemporary. Now that doesn't account for risk. Like some of those markets do have less risk, mm-hmm. but lower returns as well. It's still interesting. Yeah, yeah. So when you started, you've acquired a pretty good collection. Are you more interested in uh, sculpture or is it, are you a painting person? Sculpture sitting behind me here. I think most great art for for whatever, whatever reason is, is generally paintings, right? There are certain artists like this is John Chamberlain behind me who are just sculptors and all he did was sculpture, but yeah, I like art. I like art generally, but I most, most great artists just in the medium of, of painting. Right. Yeah. I've been lucky enough to travel and go to places like the Louvre and the UVC and see some of these masters and their works and stand really close to something like the Mona Lisa and pictures of it. You can appreciate it. But then when you stand and you can actually see Da Vinci's brush strokes in, in the yeah. canvas and you, then you start to really connect the history of, Oh my God, that guy actually painted this and I'm standing here looking at it and the talent to do that. Cause I'm colorblind for me to have the ability to do that. just went out the window at birth. So yeah, it's impressive. And, and it's, it's always amazing to me when you walk through those institutions, you, you never fully appreciate how revolutionary some of those things were in their time. There's this artist named Gustave Courbet who you know painted nude women in explicit forms in 19th century France. And you, most people who walk through the, the Courbet room at the Met today, they just blow right through it. That, you know, they don't even think about it. But right. you know, he was exiled for those paintings. Um, he couldn't come back to France. It was so revolutionary and just so dramatic at the time. And it wasn't accepted by the government. It wasn't accepted really by, by society. So, it's yeah, it's pretty amazing to go, go back in history and just go through through some of those artists. Yeah, it really is. I read The Agony and the Ecstasy uh, about Michelangelo years ago, and there was a section in there where they were talking about his study of the human body, and he went through, he made a friend with one of the, the priests, and they gave them cadavers, and then he did you know, autopsies on these bodies to learn how the, the body moved so that he could better incorporate that into his sculptures. And when you see something like the David compared to contemporaries, you can see that this guy was just light years ahead of, yeah, it's of other people. People just, yeah, absolutely yeah. ridiculous. So um, I guess let's bring it back to my Masterworks and get, get off my history <laughs> diatribe here. So 
as as beginning as somebody that's really interested in learning more about art as an asset class and how masterworks can help me what yeah, I, you guys have a great website by the way and oh, thanks. you're welcome so how can people get started how can you know if i want to start today what do i need to do yeah i, I would go to request a request a meeting with our membership team and walk them through how you're investing today, what your risk tolerances are. They'll make recommendations to on what artists to invest in, what segments of the market to invest in. That's really one of the better trained teams there are. I'm thinking about art as an asset class and how it fits into your portfolio. Um, and they'll, they'll specifically walk through what your investment objectives are. Okay. So you mentioned segments. That, that surprised me. Is there, What would a segment in the art market be? Contemporary, okay. Prussianism, modern, yeah. Gotcha. Okay. All right. And so can you diversify in those different segments so you can? Yeah. So we're we're starting to do more, a little bit more with modern and impressionism. We find certain artists, Monet is a great example, to be really interesting. There, There hasn't been as much demand for these artists historically because their headline returns are lower. But what we find with artists like Monet is their, their returns are very predictable. So when we think about risk adjusted return, Monet actually exhibits, I think, I might have this wrong, but I, I think he's the best risk-adjusted return we track, but his absolute return on a market level is something like 7%. So a lot of investors just don't find that in today's world as interesting as the, the higher return artists, but we still think they're, they're, they deserve some thought as, as part of an investment portfolio. Okay. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That's interesting. So how, I guess, how long is a process of getting started? So let's say that I, you know, contact you guys and I want to start working with you. How long does yeah, that th- really th- take? 30 minutes? Yeah. Oh, okay. That's yeah, pretty quick. It's not, it's not, it, yeah. It's not fast. Our membership calls are, are generally 30 minutes. We run investors through suitability and then really talk about recommendations around how, how to think about specific segments of the, the, the market or artists that we track to, to invest in. Okay. So how does the, you mentioned earlier, the secondary markets, how would that work then? Yeah. So as soon as you invest in a primary, in a primary offering, which is, I think of it as like an IPO, you can then trade your shares in the, in the secondary market thereafter. It works very similar to how you trade shares in any other asset class. I always tell people to to remember that these aren't exchange traded securities, right? So they don't clear in seconds, like if you're trading Google, but they, they clear in days usually, if you have a reasonable price, which is still you know, from an art world perspective, where you typically have to wait years to sell a painting, mm-hmm. is still pretty pretty cool. Yeah. So I guess if you had to, if somebody was looking to invest in art, how much like the diversification part of it? How much would people? How much would if you could recommend? How much would people allocate to art versus other asset classes? Yeah. So we do, we've done this work. We've done these asset asset allocation models internally. And the the challenge with the asset allocation models is that it really depends on an investor's tolerance for illiquidity. Even though we have the secondary market, generally these are three to 10 year investments. We tell investors to just think about these as three to 10 year holds independent of the secondary market. You need to think about what percentage of your portfolio can you tolerate not having access to in the event that, that you need liquidity. And it, usually that's people starting with around 1% of a portfolio. And then as they get more comfortable with it, they, they, they grow it from there. We see investors, when we look at the very first month that we started taking capital in May of 2019, we still see those investors investing more and more over time. So I think diversification matters like any asset class and start small and grow over time. 
Mm-hmm. So you mentioned a, a Series A funding earlier. Is is the hope and plan to go public with Masterworks at some point? Yeah, the business is profitable today. We're really the the leader in the space. There's there's not even really a distant competitor to be honest. So we're we're growing quickly. We raised 110 million dollars, a valuation over a billion. So yeah, we're just over 100 employees now, more than doubling every year. So we're just trying to manage that growth and probably eventually go public. And you still have hair. That's amazing. So good for you. <laughs> I do. I have. I'm not sure. I, I was actually looking at myself in the camera. I'm not sure that was actually totally true. But <laughs> well, as somebody who managed 50 people in a restaurant, and I lost <laughs> some hair. So, yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, a, a, a restaurant's a whole, a whole different ballgame. Oh, yeah. It's difficult. Yeah, it's, it was it was a challenge for sure. Scott, I, I feel like I've exhausted all my questions. that You've answered everything I ever thought of. So is there anything else that maybe we haven't covered? that you'd like to discuss? No, I think you I think you guys did a great job. We just again, we believe in the asset class, we believe in its role in every portfolio and we just encourage people to go to Masterworks if they want to learn more. Okay, so masterworks.io is the website and they can learn. It's it is a great website. There's lots of great stuff. There's interviews by Scott and there's also lots of great information about the the company there. Awesome. Thanks so much for the time today, guys. You're welcome. We really appreciate you coming and talking to us tonight, Scott. It was a pleasure. Likewise, Scott. All right. All right. Take care. Bye. Bye. We hope you enjoyed this content. Seven Steps to Understanding the Stock Market shows you precisely how to break down the numbers in an engaging and readable way with real life examples. Get access today at stockmarketpdf.com. Until next time, have a prosperous day. The information contained is for general information and educational purposes only. It is not intended for a substitute for legal, commercial, and or financial advice from a licensed professional. Review our full disclaimer at einvestingforbeginners.com.